Welcome back to On Call, a podcast from Amerisource Bergen, where we discuss the latest industry information relevant to our GPO member practices. Invite is committed to helping provide genetic testing to billions of patients worldwide and advancing oncology care through genomics-informed, personalized cancer treatment for patients. Cancer is the second leading cause of death in the United States, accounting for an estimated 608,570 deaths in 2021. In this podcast series brought to you by Invite, oncology specialists who routinely integrate genetic information into their patients' treatment discuss actionable options for implementing genomics-informed, personalized cancer care. In the first installment of this podcast series, Dr. Rakesh Patel, Chief Medical Officer of Digital Health, and Dr. Peter Beich, breast surgical oncologist and past president of the American Society of Breast Surgeons, discuss common barriers for integrating genetic testing and emerging digital health tools that can help healthcare practitioners scale the use of genomic information to help their patients. Peter, it's uh, so nice to talk to you again. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that I know is pretty near and dear to your heart. And that's really around uh, genetic testing and, and risk assessment. Um, why don't we, as we start, just tell us a little bit about how did you get into, you're a breast cancer surgeon and have been a disruptor in the field of breast surgery and really breast care. Um, how did you get involved in cancer risk assessment? Yeah, so we've been putting on breast cancer summits for uh, colleagues on an annual basis for years. We'd always talk about um you know, the Gale risk model or whatever. And, and one year, one of our colleagues out of the blue brought up the Tyrakesic model. I'd never heard of it. Like only one other person, the whole audience had heard about it. So he educated us that and about it that day. And we took it home and started using it. And uh, it's a fantastic risk assessment tool with uh, history as well as some biologic factors. And it also gives you a risk of uh, potential of having a BRCA1 or 2 mutation. And that really was probably the, the some of the kickoff for really getting into risk assessment at that time. So as we would uh, risk assess people in the office, we, we'd also try to figure out if they had qualified for breast cancer genetic testing, germline genetic testing. And uh, so we would go to the guidelines and the, the guidelines really were set up 20 plus years ago, um, really as, in my opinion, as an economic roadblock meaning the genetic tests 20 plus years ago were, were 5000 or $6,000 and you only got two genes and you couldn't test everybody and you, you had to have some mechanism that was economically at a societal level viable to figure out who to test. And so um, the guidelines started out that way and they became more and more cumbersome. About uh, less than 10 years ago, genetic testing costs dropped and uh, they became, and we discovered more genes were involved with breast cancer. And uh, the guidelines started to change, but they still were incredibly restrictive. And I found them incredibly confusing. And um, ultimately, I remember this one case that really triggered the study that we're going to talk about in a minute, which was a lady who was uh, about to turn 61 and she, the two weeks before her birthday, felt the breast mass and she didn't want to go see a doctor before her birthday. So perfectly reasonable. So she enjoyed her birthday. It was on a Friday. She comes in on a Monday. She's now 61. She was 60 the week before. She's now 61. Sure enough, she's got a breast mass and it ends up being a cancer. In fact, it was a triple negative breast cancer. 
And so you, I went to the guidelines because, you know, most triple negatives are covered, except the guidelines stated that at 60 or less, they were covered. At 61, a patient with a triple negative cancer uh, did, <laughs> did not get her genetic testing covered. If that's not the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, um, it's close. And so that really <laughs> triggered a response in me to, to want to uh, disprove that the guidelines were useful. And in fact, what I, what I really wanted to show that they were actually holding back appropriate genetic testing from patients with breast cancer. Yeah. Uh, specifically. So, so, Peter, this is something you've done all your career. And, and I remember at a, your presidential address at the American Society of Breast Surgeons recently when you made this comment, and I think it was really to inspire the audience, but you said guidelines are for followers. And, and you had done this, you know, having led initiatives on disrupting axillary lymph node dissection and sentinel mapping and neoadjuvant therapy, you and I collaborating on an accelerated partial breast radiation. And, and I think in genetics, you know, for a breast surgeon who really oftentimes comes into play after a diagnosis to think about moving upstream, it is an amazing opportunity. The challenge I think we all face as breast cancer professionals or any cancer professionals in general is that to make an individual or patient-specific decision, it's becoming overwhelming because the NCCAN guidelines, even for one disease, is hundreds of pages long, and the pace of change is driving requirement for us to kind of think differently. And so I, I really think that this was kind of the thought pattern that drove the universal study in collaboration with Invitae a few years ago, if, if I understand right. Take us through that journey and kind of what the findings were, what, what did the study show, and what was the impact of it? Yes, uh, thanks for bringing up the universal, the registry. The impetus was really these guidelines that were so confusing and difficult to read through and interpret and figure out if a patient qualified or if she didn't, didn't qualify. So out of that frustration, a few colleagues of mine, including yourself, developed the Universal Breast Cancer Genetic Testing Registry. And what that was is we, we wanted to look at uh, patients who met NCCN guidelines for testing and, we, and compare those to the ones who didn't meet NCCN guidelines for testing and to see what the pathogenic variant rate or the mutation rate was in each of those groups. And so we went to our colleagues. Uh, we ended up with 20 sites across the country, including uh, academic sites such as uh, Weill Cornell in New York City to Alaska, literally, and, and Hawaii and every state in between. And so we, mainly based in the community, and, and we wanted 500 patients that met criteria and 500 who didn't. And we ended up with almost that exact number. It was oh, about 980 and 480 in each group approximately. And as you can imagine, this was a, it, it was a very popular study. People love doing it because everybody has these same frustrations with the guidelines. And we completed that from initiation of the protocol through the IRB to completing a curl of a thousand patients in about one year. So it was an amazingly quick study that got done. And lo and behold, as you uh, can guess, the pathogenic variant rate between the two groups was not statistically significantly different. Now, the guidelines were able to pick out a different variety of pathogenic variants. In fact, they were very good at picking out almost all the patients that had BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations. Not all of them, but most of them. 
And that's really was their origin. That's where they came from, was the trying to pick those patients out. And so they did a pretty good job with that. But there are so many more genes now, up to 30 or probably more than that now, that are associated with breast cancer that are, that are important to know about uh, for risk, for cancer prevention, for cascade testing of their family members, et cetera, that the patients that didn't meet NCCN guidelines had just as many pathogenic variants. So we submitted that to a San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium in 2018, and all we got was a poster. I was a little disappointed in that. And so, you know, we were working on our poster, and about two months out from that meeting, we got a call from American Society of Clinical Oncology. And one of their uh, journals is dedicated to the San Antonio Breast Cancer Conference, uh, the new findings from that. And they, they said, would you mind writing an article on this for that special edition of the Journal of Clinical Oncology? Wow, I didn't, I was, of course we would do that. We'd love to do that. That's great. So ASCO, they saw the importance of the study that we just did. So we wrote a great paper in conjunction with Invitae and, uh, and our collaborators. And uh, about two weeks out, they call back and they say, you know what, um, this is, we think this is very significant and we're going to make this one of the three featured studies out of San Antonio. And so they blew it up on social media as well as conventional media. And we ended up getting it published uh, in Journal of Clinical Oncology. Well, essentially everybody that was on the study is also in the American Society of Breast Surgeons, and they saw the importance of this paper and the frustration among the members of the society. So they started looking at that paper also. And so that led to some important changes and a working group at the society, American Society of Breast Surgeons. Um, and they rewrote their society guidelines because of that paper stating specifically that all patients with breast cancer should be offered germline genetic testing. And that was, that was probably one of my proudest moments of my career was actually affecting more people than just the women and men in my practice, but actually having some effect on a national level. That uh, change got picked up and was actually got a lot of press also, Wall Street Journal, CNN, and, and it's still to this day is creating a lot of discussion among the genetic testing circles. Uh, there was a lot of resistance to that universal breast cancer testing, but I think ultimately the data is going to show that that's the correct thing to do. Well, yeah, certainly it was an amazing to be a part of that. And it was really your efforts and the, and the group that you mentioned that was really pioneering this notion. And I think it's it's stuck and really expanded beyond breast cancer at this point. Tell us a little bit about your practice and, and how do you implement genetic testing in your clinic and what types of patients, what types of panels are you ordering? Yeah, so I'm a surgical oncologist by training. Um, I used to do it all, but now my practice is truncated to just breast cancer and melanoma. So I was talking about how proud I was of this paper to one of my colleagues, Kevin Hughes, who was at Mass General at the time. And I said, environmental disease, right? You, you get UV radiation that damages the DNA in your, in your melanocytes in your skin, and you get a melanoma. 
and it's environmental. You know, there's cancers in general are some component of genetics and the environment that the patient grows up in, and some are weighted more than others. You know, retinoblastoma is a gene that's inherited and causes eye cancer, and that's pure genetics. And then, you know, lung cancer has always been thought of as a pure environmental one, as has melanoma. But as I started testing my melanoma patients, lo and behold, about 15% of them have a pathogenic variant. And um, as more and more literature comes out and people uh, have tested all kinds of cancers now, pancreatic, prostate, endometrial, lung cancer, pick, pick any colorectal, colorectal. Uh, they're all about somewhere between uh, 10 to 20% of the patients have a pathogenic variant when you do broad panel genetic testing. Now, two things on that. You know, originally thought that most breast cancers that were genetically inherited were based on just two genes, BRCA1 and 2, and then other genes popped up, PALB2 and ATM and CHECK2, and now it's well over 30 genes. And those are classic ones. But now there's about 13 genes that are associated with melanoma. And what we found, in my opinion, is the more we test and the more broadly we test, we find more and more associations between pathogenic variants and genes and cancers. And in fact, with melanoma, probably BRCA2 is probably one of the genes that is linked with melanoma, which leads me to the fact that I, I don't just do a breast cancer-specific panel for my breast cancer patients, and I don't just do a melanoma-specific panel for my melanoma patients. The The cost of doing it is, at least to my patients, is the same whether we do 13 melanoma genes or a big 80-plus gene panel. So I order the biggest panel possible, uh, knowing that a lot of those are, well, at the moment, are certainly unrelated to the cancer that the patient has. But what I've also seen is the patient also has family members that have different cancers than the one I'm seeing this patient for. And so they may have a strong family history of colorectal cancer, and they may have a, a you know, a Lynch syndrome gene that uh, just hasn't manifested yet. And I'm seeing it for melanoma and I, you know, pick it up another pathogenic variant in a different gene. Those happen not infrequently. And it's, uh, those are potentially life-saving. You know, one of my favorite sayings is, the best way to cure cancer is to never get one. And, and the way we're going to do that is with more broad-based genetic testing for germline cancer genes. And then appropriately following those patients, some potentially you can do prophylactic surgery for or prophylactic medis- medical treatment for, uh, or just very close monitoring. So if anything happened to them, you would pick it up way earlier than normal, and it would be a curable situation. So... Yeah, Peter, I love that. And what struck me as you were talking about is a story from our clinic where we launched a risk assessment in the imaging center, you know, well before they come to the cancer center and really in the spirit of doing cancer gene risk, you know, genetic cancer risk assessment, genetic testing right when you get your mammogram. We picked up a lot of patients that would otherwise likely would have been missed until they had cancer diagnosis and seen someone like you. But the other thing also that's changed in recent times is BRCA2 or BRCA1 is not just a breast cancer specific mutation. I mean, we found individuals and families 
where we now know and the guidelines have evolved where BRCA2 informs risk of prostate cancer in their male uh, relatives and pancreatic cancer as well and so on and so on. So I think you're right. I think really it's just about not thinking of cancer as a site of origin disease. And I know you've said this for a long time, but really thinking of cancer as a, a malignant process that we just need to better understand and, and leverage for prevention. I want to shift a little more gear into going beyond monogenetic mutations that we conventionally think about and test for, but really this notion of polygenic risk. How are you thinking about polygenic risk and its importance in, in this? Yeah, so that, that's a, a burgeoning field right now. Um, a lot of companies are working on developing a polygenic risk score. Uh, a lot of that data came out of the genome-wide association study, GWASH. And it basically, a lot of patients, most patients, in fact, are not going to have a pathogenic variant in a germline cancer gene. But you still see a strong family history, perhaps, or you still want to figure out what their risk is. And so you look at beyond just the pathogenic variants to a group of their single nucleotide polymorphisms, little minor changes in a host of genes, uh, patterns of these single nucleotide polymorphisms, they either increase your risk or they can actually decrease your risk too. So it's a risk stratification tool for people that don't have a germline pathogenic variant. And that, that does a lot of things. One of which is sort of slots them into how we're going to screen these patients. You know, they're not a candidate for prophylactic surgery if they've got a high polygenic risk score, but you certainly want to be following them more closely with more physical exams and potentially more imaging studies, and in the future, probably some blood tests for, for cancer also that are coming down the pipe. So, Yeah, you know, it also speaks to the fact that the field is still fairly young, and there's a lot of information that is continuously being published, and we're implementing it into our clinical workflows don't you think it's going to be more and more important to stay connected to the patient? Um, I think that reclassification is inevitable and things are that were variants of uncertain significance, for example, getting reclassified to either benign and reassuring or malignant and a little bit more worrisome. Same thing as these uh, discoveries happen. Uh, how are you managing that component of things? Because more specifically, genetic testing and risk assessment is not a one-time encounter, right? It's a, your risk changes over time, as does your family history. So how are you yeah. managing that in your clinic and, and reassuring patients that they'll stay apprised of information as a genetic? Yeah, that's, that's a really uh, poignant question for two reasons. There's a, a host of patients that got tested with just two genes in the past, or, or maybe just a panel of five breast cancer genes in the past. Well, now we've got 30, and but they come in and they go, oh, I don't have any gene, gene problems because I was already genetically tested. Well, they just had BRCA1 and 2 testing. They need a whole extended panel of testing, uh, right? And that's what we know today. Five years from now, it's going to be more genes than that. So you have to stay connected to these people and update their genetic testing as you're going forward. And and two, the other thing that is, is confusing to the general population and to some physicians is the more lifestyle genetic testing of 23andMe or uh, Heritage or what, what some of those lifestyle gene companies, well, they test for three different point mutations on two different genes, BRCA1 and 2. And those genes are very big genes, and there are literally thou several thousand different points that can be mutated that cause a problem. So 
just testing very point mutations in three spots on two genes doesn't clear you for breast cancer genetic pathogenic variants for mutations. And so uh, educating the, the public that 23andMe is not real germline genetic cancer testing, that's important. And then following these people over time, for not just for the variants of unknown significance that if you do a big panel testing, half of those patients are going to have a, a VUS, a variant of unknown significance. We treat all those as benign. We don't act on those at all. 98% of the time, approximately, they get uh, those end up being benign. So you don't act on them, but you want to follow them over time because several percentage of those ultimately could be a pathogenic variant. And so you got to follow the patient for that. And then you have to follow the patient for the updated panels that we'll be testing. There, We will find new genes that are associated with breast cancer and prostate cancer and colon cancer and the host of other cancers. And ultimately, I think the number one cause of, of uh, death in women is not breast cancer. They fear it the most, but the number one is cardiac. So I think at some point we're going to start to have to do cardiac genetic testing too. And, you know, I have Alzheimer's in my family, and so I'm quite concerned about you know, the neurogenes and want to get tested for those and see if there's anything that I could potentially manage in my own life about that. And so the cancer is just an intake point and we're curing most of those patients now. We need to help manage the whole patient and their whole health care. So they're not a cancer patient. They're just a patient. They have a cancer, but they're, they may get heart disease. They may get neuro disease. They may get uh, orthopedic, their orthopedic genes that are out there. So, you know, these are all things that I think they may intake at one point, but we need to we need to help them do their whole life with all the genetic testing that that will be coming. It's coming. Uh, yeah, it's, it's about to wash over everybody. Yeah, you know, I, one uh, final question, and then I'll ask you for a, a parting shot. the The final question is: as you're speaking about this, the fact that it's the same individual that went to the mammography center to see if they had cancer, they were technically a healthy individual that gets diagnosed, unfortunately, with a cancer diagnosis. Now they're a cancer patient having all kinds of you know treatment options in front of them. And then they're a survivor. And then we think about their family members. Maybe we can prevent disease in them, the issue of cascade testing. But it's really about this understanding your genome and leveraging its understanding to personalizing either prevention stratifying risk and personalizing treatment if necessary, whether it be oncology or cardiology, and then personalizing surveillance to make sure that we catch it early. I think, you know, clearly a hot topic and going to change the way we practice, I think, a lot of our care. Are you subtly making a pitch for testing everybody and specifically <laughs> testing them for genome management, meaning throughout one's life? Or are you still of the notion, test everyone at the time of diagnosis? And that's disruptive yeah. enough for you. Yeah, I guess I'm not very good um, at getting my point across. No, I think everybody should be tested. To be honest with you, I think we should all have whole exome sequencing, which is all the genes associated with your health uh, that we know about today. I've had it done personally, it found some interesting things, but I think if we're going to make an impact in cancer, or if we're going to make an impact in cardiac, you know, stopping sudden death uh, with uh, subaortic hypertrophy or some of the other really significant cardiac genes and the neurogenes, we need to start doing it on a broader-based, population-based scale. The Geisinger system in, in Pennsylvania is doing that right now. They're finding in asymptomatic people, one in 200 
people are going to have a BRCA1 or 2 mutation. Uh, up to 4% of them have cancer genes of some kind. And when you identify those patients and set up a program where you can uh, follow them and screen for whatever the potential cancers are with those genes, um, or you find that they have hypercholesterolemia and you start treating that early and fix their coronary artery disease before they ever get it, you know, those are population-based things that are going to happen. And, and I think sooner than later, I think the president recently began talking about that in a cancer fashion with his moonshot program, right? Weren't you involved in the moonshot at, at the president's council, I thought? Yeah, I was part of the subcommittee of looking at screening guidelines for president's cancer panel with Dr. John Williams and Dr. Kevin Hughes. You're absolutely right. I think that we can do better finding risk factors. This is one of them before disease you get struck with disease or diagnosed with disease and having interventions, predictive analytics, understanding insights about your health and being proactive, I think is key. Okay, Peter, you get one parting shot, kind of your bolo, like our buddy Pat Whitworth says, be on the lookout. What's your bolo comment for listeners around genetic testing? The bolo is, it's going to be a two-parter. Be on the lookout. Genetic testing is going to be done on all of your patients. So get ready. And then number two is we as a group of physicians, we're going to have to figure out how to manage these things. And this is going to the clinical decision support around genetic testing, the management of those patients, because they're not sick. They just have a genetic predisposition to something. So the management is going to be critical. And I think there's going to be a new specialty of genomic health or genomic management, or I don't know what the name of it's going to be, but these aren't medical geneticists. These are physicians, they can be primary care, OB-GYN, or whatever kind of doctor, but they're going to be managing the patient's entire genetic milieu. You know, if it's some cancer predisposition, some cardiac, some neuro, making a plan with that patient to keep them healthy as long as they can, and hopefully find any problems early when all problems are easier to fix. That's all for this episode of On Call. Subscribe to our channel to get notified when the next episode in this series drops. If you have any questions for today's guests or have a topic you would like to learn more about, email us at oncallgpo at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe and thanks for listening.